Father, I ask for your help now in unfolding verse 3. I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and open hearts to the Word and open the Word to hearts. I pray that I would be faithful to your truth and that no error would be spoken. I pray for biblical balance and proportion. And I I pray for proper biblical zeal in proper comparison to the realities being dealt with in this text. And I pray for a fitting resonance in the heart of this people. Lord, let there be a transaction here as your word is laid open. Because you have told us how precious and powerful is the word of God. We give ourselves to it. Apply it to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we took verses 1 and 2, and we noticed that there are two phases of God's Word in history. The first phase is described in verse 1. He spoke long ago to our fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. That's recorded for us in the Old Testament. That's phase one of God speaking. And then we notice that phase two is the word of God spoken through the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Son. And it says in verse two, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. And the reason it says last days, even though it started 2,000 years ago, is that the Son, standing forth from the Father, appearing in flesh, was the decisive, as it were, final word spoken to humankind. And everything else from there until the end of history is application and explanation of that word. So that's the last word, as it were, unfolded through the Scripture, the New Testament, and as the Holy Spirit applies this, and teaches us this until Jesus comes. So there are two phases of God speaking. One in the Old Testament, and then through Jesus Christ, and the unfolding and the application of Jesus Christ in history. And then we noticed at the end of verse 2, that this Christ is appointed heir of all things. That is, we said, he will own all things, He will rule all things, and the importance of that in this context is that therefore he can make good on the word that he spoke on God's behalf. So that if he speaks a promise to us about nothing separating us from the love of God, then at the end he will make good on that promise because all things will belong to him and he will rule over all things. But also we notice that he is the heir of all things, not just because he did something decisive in history, but it says, through him, God made the world. So there are two reasons why he embraces and owns and rules all things at the end, namely his redemptive work on the cross and in the resurrection to take care of sins, but also because before that he existed And he brought the worlds into being. That was last Sunday. Palm Sunday. Thursday night, we stood right here as the Lord's table table was spread. 
And we focused in on verse 3, one phrase. When he had made purification for sins. And we noticed three things. He. We're dealing here with a person this morning. We were dealing with a person on Thursday. We deal with a person every Sunday. This church is not about a religion. This church is not about a tradition. This church is not about a set of practices. This church is about a living, risen person called Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit, the one triune God. And this person, Jesus, is reigning in heaven today at God's right hand. We'll see that in a minute. And he is in this room right now by his spirit, receiving everything we are willing to give him in truth and rendering back to us in our hearts what we are willing to receive. He is a living person. He wants from you this morning a relationship of trust, of hope, of love, of admiration, of dependence, of fellowship, of worship. He wants a relationship and he gives himself to you for your enjoyment and for your relationship. That was the first thing we saw on Thursday night. The second thing we saw was this word of sins. And I simply stress that sin is real. There's a real thing called sin in the world. Everybody in this room sins. Everybody sins. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Because we are, by nature, defective. Something happened in world history so that every human is bent. Every human has a rebellious streak in his heart against God. And we don't have to be taught to sin. We do sin because that's the way we are. And therefore, it's a tremendous problem. And that's why the third thing we pointed out on Thursday night was Christ made purification for sin. There is a covering. There is a cleansing. There is a forgiveness. There is a removing of sin and guilt and curse. That's why Jesus came into the world. And that's what this cross, empty, is all about. So that was Thursday night at the Lord's table. Now it's Easter Sunday morning. Easter Sunday morning is for pondering the meaning of the fact that the cross and the grave of Jesus Christ are empty. You've got to have an explanation for that. And the biblical explanation of the eyewitnesses from those early days are that he was raised from the dead. And so Easter is all about pondering the meaning, the significance of Jesus Christ risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the majesty. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning dealing with verse 3 and the rest of the material there that we did not cover on Thursday night. Now verse 3 is a powerful, rich, full verse worthy of about five sermons, I figure. But we're going to do it in one. And you need to see something about verse 3 here, though you can't see it in any of your English versions probably. When the writer to Hebrews wrote verse 3, it was one 
clause. I'm going to get grammatical on you here for a minute. So go back to sixth grade, seventh grade. I learned every stitch of grammar I knew in the seventh grade from Ms. Adams. So if you didn't have a Ms. Adams, just hang on for a minute. There's a clause here, and it's got one subject and one verb, and it asserts one thing, and everything else in there, I could put grammatical labels on, but I won't press my luck here. Everything else is for shedding light on the one clause. Now, the, the subject in the sentence in verse 3 is he, Christ, and the verb is sat down. Now, you can't, it looks like two sentences in your version probably, it's just one clause. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Everything else is subordinate and shedding light on that clause. Let me do it like this for you. He, being the radiance of God's glory, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He, being the exact representation of God's nature, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He, upholding all things by the word of his power, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He, having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. That's the point. He's stressing here that in Christ's dying, being buried, rising, and being enthroned at the right hand of God, where he sits today until all of his enemies are put under his feet, is fitting... Because of four things in this verse. Let me say them again. It is fitting because he's the radiance of God's glory. Therefore, he sat down. It's fitting because he's the exact representation of God's nature. So he sat down. It's fitting because he holds all things up by the word of his power. And therefore, he sat down at the right hand. And it's fitting because he made a perfect purification for sins and sat down. So the focus in the verse is an Easter focus. We have a risen Christ installed as king and with a great coronation service seated at the right hand of God the Father in majesty. And everything else in the verse is saying, why should he experience that? What did he do or who is he that this should happen to him? And that's what we're going to talk about now. We'll take them one at a time. There are four things here. I'm going to crunch them and do them in three by putting two of them together. Number one, let's start with this word. He made purification for sins and he sat down. Now, what's the connection there? What's the link between the making of purification for sins on a cross and being seated by God the Father in majesty at the right hand. What's the link there? If you want to see it explicit, turn to chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read verses 12 through 14, because here you not only have the putting together of those two events, the making of purification for sins and the installation at God's right hand, but you have a connection spelled out as to why they go together. Let's read verse 12 through 14 of Hebrews 10. He, this is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, there's the connection. It isn't made explicit yet, the link, but there they're put together just like they are in verse 3. 
Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time, from that time onward, until the enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, here comes the connection. For, or I don't know what might be there in your Bible, or because, for, or because, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So what we have made explicit in the connection between 14 and 13 is that he is installed sitting at the right hand of God in majesty, waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet because he made a perfect redemption on the cross when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. He perfected for all time those who are being Sanctified. Now let me, let me stop on this a minute because this is incredibly relevant for right where you are this morning. Every one of you, no matter whether you're a believer in Jesus yet or not. It says, when Christ died on the cross, he made a perfection or he perfected a group of people. Who? Those who are being sanctified. Oh, a lot of big technical language. Let me, let me tell you what I think that means. If you this morning believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is, if you put your hope in Him and bank on Him for the fulfillment of His promises to you, then a relationship is established by the Holy Spirit. You are linked with God, with Jesus Christ in a saving relationship and the Spirit of Christ comes into you. And when he comes into you, he begins to change values and affections and emotions and priorities and what you love and what you hate. And that process of change as you become more and more like him is called sanctification. So what this text is saying is that when Christ gave himself as an offering once for all, he perfected the people who so trust in Christ that they are being changed into Christ's image. Now, this is strange and this is wonderful. The strange thing about it is it says He's perfected them by his bloodshedding offering and they are now being sanctified or being conformed to his image. Well, clearly, John Piper is not perfect. And on the road to heaven, I am being changed. Little by little, the Spirit's working on this case. The, the reality in God's mind, as he looks at this cross, is John Piper already in Christ has been perfected. That's what that verse says. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, he's perfected those who are being perfected. The, the perfecting work is finished in one profound sense. Namely, that in Jesus Christ, the debt has been paid, the guilt has been removed, the sin has been wiped away, 
And what I'm doing now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is trying to catch up with who I am in Christ. I know that's heavy, and it's glorious. Because it means, brothers and sisters, that we are not living a life with our fingernails trying to climb some rock and get our chin over the top and say, God, do I, do I, did I do it good enough to be saved? It's not the way it is. We're sitting with Him enthroned in heaven. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, Paul says. It is finished for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the evidence of being in Christ Jesus is faith such that you're in battle with your sin. It's good news for imperfect people. It's not good news for people who are indifferent to sin. It's bad news. If you're indifferent to sin and say, oh, I can sin, do whatever I want. Sanctification is just, uh, just a thing you don't have to really be involved in. This text says sanctification is the evidence of whether you've been perfected. Whether you're in. So here we are this morning. And we're hearing that a purification has been made for sins. And because of the purification, God installed the Son at His right hand. As if to say, it is finished. It was good enough. I'll raise you out of death because your death did exactly what I sent you to do. To make my people perfect. And so our first reason for why Christ is sitting at the right hand of majesty is that the work of Christ in perfecting a people through the offering of himself is perfect, complete, once for all, it is over. And if you are in Christ, it is yours. That's number one. Now, number two is different. It is that Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. You see that there in verse 3? He upholds all things by the word of his power. Therefore, he sat down. Or let's just say it. He, upholding all things by the word of his power, sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Now, why, I ask you why, in this verse, does it point out at this place that Christ holds in being this pulpit? This body, those clouds that keep going in front of the sun, the sun, the air, the globe, the galaxy, the universe. Why does it say here that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power? And the reason is this. This writer is so eager to exalt Jesus Christ to his proper place and to put us in our proper place that he wants us to realize We do not just depend on Jesus for the purification of our sins. We depend on Jesus for our existence. There are two things that might keep you from enjoying God forever and ever. One, lack of forgiveness for your sins. Two, lack of existence. If you have no forgiveness, you will not enjoy God. There will only be judgment. If you go out of existence, you will not enjoy God. Two things have to happen for you to enjoy God forever and ever. One, you have to exist. And two, you have to be forgiven. And this text says, we are beholden to Jesus for both of them, not just one of them. We owe Jesus our being and we owe Jesus our 
forgiveness. That's why he includes it. Now, this sounds strange to modern man. In fact, it looks like it's sounding strange to some of you. Modern people, like me, assume this is real. That's real. That's the starting place. Tell me what I can see, what I can feel, what I can smell, what I can hear, what I can touch. That's real, right? The scientific method. That's our God. That's the way we view the world. Real stuff is stuff you can get your hands on. Stuff you can touch and see and hear. And that's the measuring rod for what's real in the universe for millions and millions of people. Now, this writer has a totally different worldview. This writer says, that cross looks big, heavy, solid. You know what? It's hanging by the slenderest of threads and at any millisecond could go out of being. And what holds it in being, all those brown molecules of wood, what holds that in being is the word of Jesus Christ. If Jesus were to say, stop being, it would be gone. It wouldn't be smoke. It'd be nothing. Nothing. Nothingness is the alternative to the word of Christ. John Piper would be nothingness if Jesus were not speaking me into being. Moment by moment. That's what it says here. He upholds all things by the word of his power. There was a philosopher 350 years ago, some of you remember from school, a man named Rene Descartes. You might remember the adjective form of his last name, Cartesian philosophy. He's well known for one sentence. And he's well known for an orientation in philosophy that is pervasive in modern times. He engaged in a system of methodical doubt, aiming to build everything on rock-solid certainty. And he doubted, and he doubted, and he doubted down to the bottom until he got to one non-doubtable sentence. Remember it? In Latin, cogito... Ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am. What do you think of that sentence? Trick question. <laughs> Is that a good sentence? I think, therefore I am. You know, my response to that sentence is not that it's false, but that it is incredibly superficial. That is, it deals with a little thin layer of reality and doesn't deal with what my thinking really means. You know what the writer to the Hebrews would say? He would say, I think, therefore, Christ is. Now we're talking depth of philosophy. I think, 
Therefore, Christ is. Christ upholds the thinking of everybody in this room. He upholds your heart beat and your lungs working and all the metabolism processes of your body. The only reason you think is because of Christ. So you can tell whether you're a modern person. You can take your stand with a biblical worldview that says, I think, therefore, Christ is or I think, therefore, I am. My being, the measuring rod of all and the beginning point of all philosophy and thought, or Christ's being as the measuring rod of all and the beginning point of all philosophy and thought. The second point is that Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father in majesty, not only because he made purification for your sins, but because he holds everything in being. Which means that we are radically, oh, I wish you could feel this. When Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, felt it, he shuddered with fear and trembling. That he is utterly, totally, moment by moment, dependent on the will of Jesus Christ that he be. I mean, once you've, once you begin to feel this biblical worldview, that my existence, that I will live to eat lunch with my family today, is wholly owing to Jesus Christ alone, then you will begin to worship. Then you will know some of the tremendousness of holiness. Then you will know some of the awesomeness of reality. You will look at that sun in such a different way. And you will look at flowers in a different way. And you will look at your family in a different way. Everything will be shot through with God. I got a phone call from a pastor this week who asked me about whether I believe in rewards in heaven and whether we should live for them. And if so, why wouldn't that be idolatry? And I responded to John Bloom. I said, tell him that uh, to read pages 132 to 136 in Desiring God. Which say, he serves thee who little, too little, or loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, flowers, son, family, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. The way you keep rewards in heaven and flowers on earth and family from becoming idols is by believing these rock-solid truths that the only reason my little girl, Talitha, has any existence at all is because of Christ. So that every little smile, every little month new discovery, ah, fingers in my mouth, every move is Christ. It's Christ. He's everywhere, under everything. And, and if you don't see that and you don't believe that, he'll be a day a week. And he'll be weak and you will live like the world and think like the world. We don't want to be that way. And he's a person. Now finally, there's one more. It says that he sat down being the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his nature. Do you see that there at the beginning of verse 3? Being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Now, the difference here between this and what we've just seen, namely making purification for sins and upholding the world by the word of his power, is that those two are deeds that Christ did and is doing. This is who he is. Not what he did, but who he is. And there are two phrases. He is the radiance of God's glory and he is the exact representation of God's Nature. Now, this is important, so this will be our last point. Who is it that sat down at the right hand? Who is it that went to the cross? Who is it that was buried and rose again? Who is it that upholds all things by the word of his power? Who is Jesus Christ this morning? These two phrases have to be taken together because they protect each other from misunderstanding. Take the second one first. He is the exact representation of the divine nature or of God's nature. What does that mean? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul said, he is the image of the invisible God. But you know what? You could say that sentence. He is the exact representation of the nature of God and be absolutely wrong in the way you think about it. For example, you could say, Jesus is the representation of God the Father the way a painting represents a person. And you'd be wrong. You could say, Jesus represents the nature of God the way an authorized letter from a king represents the king. And you'd be wrong. Or you could say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the exact representation of God the Father in that a, a wax mold has an impress and it perfectly represents the ring. And you'd be wrong. And the reason we know that would be utterly inadequate to talk that way is because the first phrase tells us how he is a representation, and it isn't any of those. He is an exact representation of the Father in that he is the radiance of his glory. He represents the glory of God the way radiance represents glory. I think on this for a minute. That's very different than a painting representing a person, a letter, a king, a wax mold, and a ring. Radiance coming out from a light, streaming down from, from the sun, is not another thing. It's not a different essence than the thing. The radiance of glory is the glory radiating. That's the profound thing to get a handle on here. Christ is not other than God representing God. He is God representing God. He is the Father 
streaming out in glory, standing forth in another person whose essence is the same divine essence. We're talking mystery here, I realize. We won't begin to exhaust this or end it, but we can see a little bit. The window can be cracked enough so that we can worship aright and not make heretical statements about the Son being a creature or a mere prophet. Let me give you, in closing, four ways that the sun streams out or is radiating the glory of the Father. Number one, there is no time, let's compare him with the sun, the sun radiating out its beams. There is no time when the sun exists that its radiant light does not exist. They are so much a part of each other that when the sun exists, the radiance of the sun exists. When God the Father exists, the sun exists. They are co-eternal. The Father did not exist and they'd say, I think I shall bring into being a son. That is not the way it happened. He is eternally begotten, eternally streaming out. Where there is light, there are rays. Where there is God, there is a son. Of God. Second, this radiance is the glory radiating out, radiating out. It is not essentially different. The Son of God is God. He is not by nature another being. Number three, He is not created or made. Compare this with a solar calculator. I think of this because I was using one the other night getting my tax stuff ready. Plunk, plunk, plunk. And I, I asked Barnabas, where's the off switch here? Pushing this on switch. He says, it's a solar calculator. I said, oh. Just put it back in the cover. It goes off. Now what that means is that when the sun or the light in my dining room shines on this little window, little black number appears. Now, it'd be fair to say that the light created that or made it, produced it in some way. And that number is not the light. So don't ever think of the Son of God like the numbers on a solar calculator. That God made the Son. He brought the Son into being like that. The Son is the light shining on the world and making the world. He is begotten, not made, the old creeds say. The point being that you beget like. Humans beget humans. Dogs beget puppies. Cats beget kittens. And God begets God. Lastly, number four, it is by means of the rays of the light that we see light. Pick, you know, in the first service at this point, the sun came out and a big beam just landed on about 40 people right there. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was great. And I said, now you, you know what? If you try to look up through that window in the sun, first of all, it'll blind you. Don't do that. And that's just a little reflection of God. God would blind you too. You have to have a means to see God. You have to have a mediator. The mediator is the son of God and the son of God is the radiance of the glory of God. And I said, you know what? The light that is on your face right now, arrived there eight minutes after it left the sun. About eight minutes ago, while I was preaching, it left the sun. These beams went out. And they landed, 
right on our face. Now, if you if you look at those rays, you can actually see, if you put on the right glasses, you see a ball. Or at sunrise and sundown when it's safe, you can see a ball. Are you seeing the sun? Yeah, you're seeing the sun, but actually you're seeing eight minutes later what the means of the sun's rays give to you to see. Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're together. We're, this is 20th century. What we're seeing is a ball that's eight minutes old being mediated to us by light streaming over 93 million miles from the sun. But we're seeing the sun, folks. That's the sun. And when you look at Jesus Christ, you are seeing God. And therefore, he is seated at the right hand of majesty. So I close by commending him to you this morning. I want you to leave with Jesus this morning. Remember what I said earlier? This is a person we're talking about here. We're not talking about a set of ideas. We're not talking about a religion. We're not talking about practices. We're not talking about tradition. We are talking about a living, glorious, reigning God person. Jesus Christ. He's here right now. He's ready to relate to everybody who will embrace him. Would you not know the one who holds you in being? The one who makes purification for sins? And the one who is the radiance of God. Offering God to you to be known for who he really is. Would you not know him? You may know him. You may have him. For the embracing, for the believing, for the hoping in him. It is that free and that simple. Let me pray for you as we close. Why don't you stand with me, would you? Father in heaven, I want to pray for us now in closing. We've, we've heard your word. We've seen this glorious message about your sons being seated in majesty at your right hand because he made purification for sins, because he holds the world up by the word of his power, because he's the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your nature. We've seen it. And oh God, I beg of you that the eyes of our hearts would be open now. That everybody's heart would be open. And that there would be the evidencing in our hearts of the glory and the beauty of God in Christ. And Lord, would you create a yieldedness? Would you nurture this revelation this morning from your word into faith so that there would be purification for sins and eternal life in those who are here? Father, we want to celebrate your being. We want to celebrate the Son. We want to celebrate the resurrection. And so one more time, we say, the Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. You're dismissed. God bless you.